Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. My social media pages will be full of people, C-U-N-T, and saying, bring back Ed, fuck you. And that'll be seven years later. But, you know, I don't care. Everyone is going to know you from Wheeler Dealers, one of the most watched motoring shows in the world. With over 20 million Beatles sold since... You were actually recognised by one of the members of the Taliban in Afghanistan for your car show. I was shot at, blown up, was in a helicopter, crashed, the pilot got shot in the face... It was a horrendous time. I love what I do. I love life. When I googled search terms around Wheeler Dealers, the most googled search term is why Mike Brewer and Ed China fall out. It was all about control. I love him to bits and I wish him all the best. I just don't get the, the shit that we have to, you're going to suffer online and you will. Yeah, you say you didn't fall out, but when was the last time you saw Ed? I don't know what else I could say to that. In researching your story, I've been surprised, shocked and inspired. But in many ways, it's given me the context into a man like yourself has committed their life to automobiles. Of course, everyone is going to know you from Wheeler Dealers, one of the most watched motoring shows in the world. But in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm Mike Brewer. I'm a wheeler dealer, literally, and uh, a family man and uh, a hard worker. I don't know what else I could say to that, actually. That's about it. You know, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. It's been widely covered in previous podcasts and interviews that your dad was a huge part into the reason that you got into cars. However, what made you fall in love with cars? What gave you that spark, that moment where you actually loved them? Yeah, I love that question because that's a, you know, most people of, you know, my generation grew up at a time when cars were a pleasure. You know, as if you had a car when I when I was a kid, you were your parents had a car, you were something special, you know, uh, access to a vehicle meant that you could get out of the big smoke London which is where I grew up 
and uh, you could travel to the coast or travel to uh, the countryside, which is not something that a lot of people could do because, you know, not a lot of people had money uh, back then. And um, having a car and accessibility to car meant it could transport you somewhere else. And I think for me, uh, being that my dad was such a, a car guy and a car lover, um, I just remember the joy, the good times. It was always, with, I'm a, I had a big family, you know, I'm the, the baby of six. And it was always the, the joy and the good times were always in the car, going somewhere, going to the coast, going to the countryside, you know, going just on a whim in the moment, you know, driving to Box Hill and uh, running down Box Hill with my brothers and sisters. And, you know, it was just those things that were that sort of automotive triggers, if you like, uh, to why I love cars so much, because they just transport you back to a time when you just remember the joy in your life. And back in that time, full of joy, growing up, realising that you've got a passion, you love cars, your dad's helped you get into them. Do you remember any particular moments that really captivated you with them? Uh, yeah, just working with my dad. I mean, they are the real moments. As a eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old lad, you know, when you have your school holidays and it's summer and all your friends are going to go and play over the park or we're going to go to Brockwell Swimming Bars because we lived in Brixton. Um, we're going to go to Brockwell Swimming Bars for the summer and that was it. Um, my dad had a garage. He had a workshop and a garage and uh, I would often want to go to work with my dad, you know, just to hang out with your dad is pretty cool anyway and I've got a pretty cool dad. Uh, so I just wanted to go and hang out with him really. So hanging out in the workshop with him and uh, watching him fix cars up and... Uh, renovate cars was just a pleasure and it was a joy i didn't really know at the time i'll be honest you know i've sort of learned my craft without knowing that i'd learned my craft it's i suppose it's like you know if you grew up and your dad was an airline pilot by the time you're 15 you know how to fly a plane without knowing that you know how to fly a plane or how you got there um i just knew everything about cars because i listened uh to my dad a lot and uh he's a bit of a savant when it comes to you know he was a customizer so he would pull a car apart refashion it put it back together in a different way uh or he would modify it and put you know bigger carburetors on bigger exhaust bigger wheels and he was doing that at a time when nobody was doing it so i just sort of learned this craft through him how to take something that was awful and make it a lot better and uh, if you make it a lot better it sells and uh, it puts food on the table what was your personality like back then because if most people see you on a TV screen now or in the past, you've always been an exuberant, still are very exuberant, powerful, happy individual. And that pisses people off. That can really piss people, you know, on a daily basis. I get people uh, on social media tell me that I'm a twat or a, like an idiot or whatever it is because I've got this exuberant personality. But it's because I love what I do. I love life. I love what I do. I think, you know, uh, my life's been great and it's brought me to a place and it's because I've focused on one thing only and that is my passion and my love of cars and if that pisses people off I don't care really but um, uh, yeah I mean me as a youngster and my personality back there as a youngster it, this is quite interesting because I'm the baby of six okay and my mum would be probably the first to tell you bless her that by the time she had five you know the sixth one was a bit of a surprise I think so um, she, I don't mean she, you know, she amazing parents I've got, but my mum was t by the time the sixth one come along, 
So it was like, get your older brothers and sisters to look after you, I suppose. So um, the only, when we were poor, I mean, really, really poor, we lived in a block of flats in, in uh, Tongsil in Brixton and uh, we had no money. And uh, we used to fight for food. You know, my mum would send me out and go scrumping, you know, for food to put on the table. So uh, we had nothing. And um, when you've got nothing, you get your elbows out and you shout your way to the top because if food did hit the table, my five elder brothers and sisters would get there first. So I'd have to muscle in on that table and be, don't forget me, don't forget me. And I had this, you know, I had to be louder and bigger than my stature uh, to put food in my stomach and to be heard in the family. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm the one that, I suppose in my family, I'm the one that was the most uh, cheeky and um, outgoing. My brothers, my, my other brothers are the same a little bit. But I had to be a bit more cheeky and a bit more outgoing to, uh, to be heard within my large family. So confidence come naturally. Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to be confident. I was very tight. I, I, looking at the size of me, hey, you wouldn't believe it, but I was really small all the way up until I was like 19. I was tiny. I uh, couldn't, you know, at 19, I'd never get served in a pub. I could never buy a packet of cigarettes. Uh, I, I used to have a letter from the chief of police. I used to carry with me on my scooter, my 16 years of age, on my 50cc scooter to say, because I look like a 10-year-old, to say he is legal to to ride the scooter um uh yeah so i as a small person uh in this big family you have to have confidence you know you uh, and being at school you know with these big lads around me because i was tiny and uh you know lads at the age of 14 to 16 they can be anything from five foot to seven foot um and there i was this four foot you know four and a half foot little urchin and uh, when you get thrown into an all-boys school environment like that, you have to get confidence really quickly. Otherwise, it's going to show you're going to get picked on and bullied at school very, very quickly. And that wasn't going to be me. You know, I was going to, everyone in this school was going to love me. And uh, everyone was going to want to hang out with Mike Brewer. And uh, that's what I did. I just made sure that I was the, the confident one at school that everyone knew. Did you enjoy doing sports or integrating that way, or was it your personality uh, yeah, that set you so up? Yeah, I mean, I was good at uh, football. I was good. I hated rugby. Which, uh, rugby was uh, on the curriculum at my school because uh, it was all boys' school and it was uh, you got to play rugby. And I hated it because, you know, as I say, I was small. And when you got a, a 16 year old who's twice the size of you, um, although I was 16, I was tiny, pounding towards you, it's terrifying. Um, so privately I did boxing uh, away from school I did a little bit of uh, ABA uh, boxing which I was good at um, because of my size because I was small uh, I'd be matched because it's weight driven boxing so I'd be matched with kids that were uh, you know 14, 13, 12 even but there I am mentally 16 so I would always beat them because uh, mentally I was a 16 year old but stature I was a 13, 14 year old uh, so, um, yeah, I had a bit of an advantage there in boxing and I enjoyed that. Um, and I was a mental skateboarder, absolutely went crazy for skateboarding. So much so that I, I rode for a team called Sidewalk Surfers. I remember it very well. I uh, used to travel all over the country in competitions. I was a half pipe specialist and, uh, I was sponsored by Van Shoes, believe it or not, back in, uh, you know, back when I was 14, 15 years of age, I had a sponsorship deal with Vans and Rector shorts, which were these suede shorts. And, um, yeah, that was 
that was uh, um, something that happened in my past, you know. That so I was quite sporty in nature. You had to be, you had to be when you were up in Brixton. You want to be able to run fast, quickly, um, at a moment's notice. Uh, so you have to be quite sporty. <laughs> so I'm imagining then that competitive nature starts to build and makes your competitive character doing all of those sorts of things. But alongside a love for sports, uh, embracing all kinds of hobbies growing up, being the confident one, competing against your brothers and friends. What were you having to do to earn a few quid? Because you mentioned from coming from Brixton and a bit of a tough background. I'm imagining that Wheeler Dealing actually started from a young age. Very young age, yeah. So probably uh, the youngest I can remember would be around 10, 11 years, 12 years of age uh, was me being a milk boy. So uh, you probably wouldn't know this, Ben, but back in the olden days, when the world was black and white, milk was delivered to your doorstep by a milk float. Um, and I used to go down at the Unigate Milk Dairy, hang around uh, at four or five o'clock in the morning before school uh, to see if I could jump on a milk float and be a milk boy for the day. And uh, I was very good at that. And uh, I, I loved it, actually really liked it. I'm an early morning riser anyway, always have been. And... Um, yeah, from a very early age, I can remember bringing home money, you know, from my family and putting it on the table so we could eat. And uh, I did that from, from 10, 11, 12. I did paper rounds, milk rounds. Uh, and then when I got to about 14, maybe a little bit earlier, but, but I reckon around 14 years of age, I um, uh, when I got a job at Sutton Market, we moved out of central London to Sutton in Surrey. And uh, there was a market, and I went and got a job on the market stall selling fruit and veg. And that's where I learned very quickly communication skills. Because if your boss gives you a, a box of bananas or a box of oranges, and he says, sell them to those women as quickly as you can before I give you another box, uh, you stand and shout at women. So you're going, 10 oranges for a pound. Come on, ladies, 10 oranges. Who won't want a juicy orange? And uh, people used to... I'm not making this up. People used to come and watch me. They, I had this little sort of theatre show, going all on my own, selling oranges and, and bananas. And my family used to come and watch me, you know, on the street corner, uh, selling this stuff in in a market in Sutton. And uh, I loved it because I used to bring home money, you know, at the age of 14 years of age. Even, funny enough, even when I was selling fruit and veg and I was doing it, on a Tuesday, uh, sometimes I'd bunk off a of school to help them over the market or straight away as soon as school finished, I'd run to the market to help them pack up just to get a fiver. Uh, but all day Saturday, most days Sunday, I would go down to Jubilee Market at Covent Garden and uh, help them down there. Uh, even though I did that, as as well as packing up the fruit and vegetable at the end of the day, I'd quickly run through the market. Any of the ladies that had, uh, were selling dresses, that were struggling to get their dresses into their vans, I would help them. For a couple of quid, it didn't matter as long as I was grabbing money left, right and centre. Uh, because we were poor and I didn't want to be poor. I, d I, d I didn't want to be a, a poor kid. Uh, so I, anything to come home, put some money on the table, you know, and help. Did you just have that mindset or did that mindset come from having parents that you had? From my parents. Yeah, my parents are the most tenacious, workaholic, caring grafters you could ever meet. Growing up in the centre of London in a council estate in a rough part of London with six kids isn't easy. You know, that's not easy. When you're talking, you know, back then uh, a van driver would get 25 quid a week. 
you know, my mum as a secretary would go and get 20 quid a week, you know, so you're talking 45 quid a week and you've got to feed a family of six and pay your rent and, you know, run a car and try and give the kids an experience at the weekend, take them to the seaside uh, and buy them fish and chips, which was such a treat. Or, or even when the ice cream van come round, you know, going down and buying a pint of ice cream for the kids on a Sunday. You know, none of that would have been cheap, easy for my parents. That would have been very, very difficult. Um, but fortunately, I have two brilliant, amazing, unworking parents and brothers and sisters that all had the sort of same work ethic and tenacity as me. And we all poured together in the same direction. Did you ever think, did you ever have a moment where you thought, though, work ethic is a huge part of people getting where they have done today and the people that I have on here, work ethic is a massive part of it. But also believing and kind of setting a goal that's almost unachievable is another part of it because you're always going to come up somewhere close to that goal. When was the first time, though, that you thought you were made for more or could do more or could earn more? And what, did you have any kind of triggers as a young person of seeing someone do really well and thinking that could be me? I'd be honest and say, no, I think every moment of my life has come as a bit of a surprise uh, to me. Um, I always felt when I got into my, when I left school, I went to work in the print, first of all, with my dad. My dad was uh, uh, working at, a, uh, we printed album covers, 12-inch uh, record sleeves. That's what we printed. And I worked on a four-color printer, printed uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Uh, there you go. Uh, so I worked on a four-color printer in South London. Uh, in Wandsworth and uh, had a regular wage that was me at you know 16 years of age uh, up until 17 on my scooter came to work every day uh, getting my £25 a week or whatever it was back then uh, working still in the fruit vegetables at the weekend um, it, I just had opportunities it wasn't so much that I knew that I could do better you know I went to work in I worked in the print and I went, went to work for IPC magazines in the post room because um, all my family worked there. And it was only because I had sort of opportunities along the way, and I'm I'm very much an opportunist guy, so if something comes my way and I think it's going to work or it's going to be better, I'll have a go at it. You know, I'd suppose even, you know, thinking about it back then when I was this 16, 17-year-old lad, uh, you know, I'd, I'd grab that opportunity and have a go at it. And that happened, you know, I, I worked at IPC magazines had a scooter drove around the country at weekends like an idiot uh on my scooter and run up debt you know i run up a debt of a of a grand and my i can remember this moment very well my mum opens the uh statement from the bank one day and uh, i remember coming home and my mum's standing there with my bank statement she opened it by mistake and she said what the is this what have you done how have you got yourself in this much debt and i was like a grand in debt which was awful back then and I said that was me just being an idiot at the weekends going to stay in hotels in Brighton and Morecambe or wherever I could take my scooter and just hang out with people and go to all-nighters and um, I, I'd run up this debt and I didn't know what to do about it and it just so happened that around the same time as a 17, 18 year old now around the same time IPC magazines offered redundancy throughout the company, voluntary redundancy, and, and I got offered four grand to leave. And I'm like, four grand for a, you know, nearly 18-year-old lad who's got a scooter and a £1,000 debt is like somebody, it's like winning the lottery. So I was like, 
I'm having that. <laughs> I'm so having that. So I took the uh, I took the redundancy money and uh, built sort of a b b built reputation. There was a snooker hall next door. Long story. There was a snooker hall next door. Love a snooker hall. Yeah, and uh, and I was really good at snooker. And I said to the guy that runs a snooker hall, believe it or not, I'm not making this up. He was an American, and his name was John Candy. But it wasn't the John Candy. It was just, that was his name. And uh, he had the snooker hall next door. And I, I said to him, look, I'm going to take redundancy from that building. If you make me the manager in here, I will have every single person in that building come play snooker in it with you. And he went, yeah, okay, go for it. So I went and run. I lied, said that I can run a bar. I can run snooker halls. I know exactly what I'm doing. I can do the accounts for you. Completely lied. Took the opportunity, but did it. Learned it within a week. Uh, just got on with it. Learned it. Uh, run this snooker hall. Literally everyone in that building poured in because everyone knew my family and me because we all worked there. Uh, and it became my social club. That became my social club. And it was during that period of time when this guy came in, sat opposite me for four nights on the trot, Blonde hair, blue-eyed, good-looking guy called Peter. He stared at me, working behind the counter, and everyone's going, he wants you. He's he's come for you, you know that, he wants you. And I thought, well, you know, this guy fancies me, he wants me. I don't know how to handle this. You know, I had a girlfriend, and I don't know how to handle this. I hope he doesn't uh, proposition me. And then one night, he leaned across the bar, put his hand on my hand across the bar, and he said, um, I want you to come and work for me. I own a fleet of garages. I think you're going to be the best salesman the country's ever seen. Um, I'll watch you work behind this bar. You're amazing. I want you to come and work for me. And that was me stepping into the motor trade. And you didn't even think it was going to be for that? Uh, no, I thought it was for something <laughs> completely else. Kind of disappointed, to be honest with you. But, um, no, he was, uh, he was called Peter. He took me to his, uh, he had a, did an interview with me that weekend. At uh, this garage in Tootin in South London, huge, great big garage, selling sort of Jaguars and Daimlers and... Sounds like an interview for the sake of an interview, though, because yeah, he, he already did, knew did, he wanted you. Yeah, I, he, he just said, I, I need you to come down and talk to me. And I didn't even... I, I was driving a car, but didn't uh, with L plates on. It was my uh, girlfriend's car. She passed. I hadn't. Uh, with L plates on, it was a, a little... Uh, she had a Morrissey towel. And um, I went down and said to him, yeah, I've got a driver's license, I can drive. I just winged it, and uh, which I could drive. And then he said, uh, yeah, you start on Monday. And I was like, well, actually, I've got a job at a snooker hall. And he said, yeah, you're not going back there. You start on Monday. And uh, at the time, I was earning £200 a week at snooker hall. I was earning more money than all my friends. So all my friends, like the manager at, Tesco's or uh, the guy that worked in the, you know, in the, um, what should we call it, quick fit euro down the road. They're all, they're all earning sort of 140, 150 quid a week. And I was earning 200 pound a week. And all my friends just going, oh, money bags brewer. We'll get, you're putting petrol in the car this weekend when we go to Brighton or whatever it was, you know, you're buying the drinks. Uh, and this Peter sat opposite me and said, how much you get? And I said, I get 200 pound a week. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll match that. I'll give you 200 pound a week but I'll give you a hundred pound for every car you sell. And I went, okay. And on the Monday, I, I told Mr. Candy, funny enough. I can I went see back, where this is going. I, I told Mr. Candy, I said, Mr. Candy, I've been offered a job and uh, this is what the guy's offered me. And he said, go do it. He said, I love you. You'll always have a home here, but you've got to take it. Take this opportunity. You're amazing. 
So uh, I started on a Monday. He taught me how to wash a car properly. In fact, I washed the same car four times on a Monday uh, because he said it wasn't good enough every time until I got it right. Uh, he taught me how to write a finance document out on Tuesday. He taught me how to do an invoice on Wednesday and do a filing. On Thursday, Exchange of Martin Auto Trader came out and I sold 11 cars. So at the end of that week, he paid me 1,300 quid and I'd never seen so much money other than that redundancy, but I had this cash put in front of me at the end of one week's work and I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life and I'm going to be really good at this. I'm going to learn and become the best I could possibly be at this. And that's, uh, that was me in the moat trade. I'm picturing with that story, do you remember with um, Lotus in Formula One, mm. Kimi Raikkonen's contract? Yeah. He got paid 50 grand per point one season over the top of his normal salary. <laughs> and the Iceman that he is, it nearly put the company, company into but, yeah. debt. They owed him millions, didn't they, when he left? It was like 18 million was, or yeah. something in bonus points. That is literally what I was picturing when you were telling me that story. Well, that's, that's exactly what I did. I just put my, absolutely put my nut down. I just went mental for it. And at the age of uh, 19 years of age, I bought, a, you know, bought my first house and uh, had a car and uh, had nice clothes and would go to restaurants and uh, you know I was 19 years of age and on my way you know I wasn't that person that kid from the council estate anymore I was I broke out I broke away from that and I was on my way to somewhere else. So being able to purchase your first house at 19 making more money than all your friends your mum and dad must have been amazed you learn all of these skills because you got hard work from your parents you got the ability to be that confident, cocky sales chap from working multiple jobs in the market. And I actually later on will pick back up on that as well because I think that's still with you today because when people ask how someone juggles so many plates, I actually think it comes back to moments just like that. But how did you not get a little bit ahead of yourself in a way? It's really a lot of success for a 19-year-old. Was there any moments that kind of then knocked you back the other way a little bit and made you realise... I don't know, sometimes people need to be a little bit humbled on their way up when they think, oh my God, this is all just starting to come easy. Or did you still really understand the value of those pounds? Because you mentioned about the debt. I so understood the value of money. I knew exactly how much a tin of beans was, what a loaf of bread would cost. I knew how uh, money could bring happiness to not only to me, but to my friends and to family. And uh, no, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not saying that I focused my life on, you know, show me that money, Tom Cruise kind of thing. I didn't do that. I just knew that, you know, this, uh, this was a way out. This was, you know, I could change, I could change my life here. Uh, and I, I should change my life. You know, there's, I, I don't have to conform. You know, I've got still family members that are quite happy where they are. You know, they, they're doing something that they do in all their life and they're quite happy doing that but I always think why you know you could do so much more if you wanted to um, because you're clever and you can and uh, it just takes a bit of nouse and a bit of craft and you can you can achieve better things and I've always been like that you know I, I, I'll be honest with you as well it's not all from me you know I've I've worked with people you know Peter and John the two guys in that car business uh, they were real motivators they showed me the path and it was it was Peter and John that literally put me in debt again. They put me in debt. They went, buy a house. And I went, okay, buy a bigger house than you can possibly afford. And we'll 
help you get a, a mortgage and they did and there i am with this you know sizable property uh that i you know I, I couldn't really afford the mortgage but you know how i afforded the mortgage i worked harder for them and that's what they did and then the next house come along and they're asking me you know work harder because you've now got another house uh you know to 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 pay for uh, a bigger mortgage and uh so a lot of that sort of work and uh motivation come from the people around me and the people that i work for they you know, fundamentally when you look back at it and it still gets uh this is still happening to me today i get used a lot you know because i've got this you know whatever it is the gift of the you know of the gab and um people use it you know uh, to their benefit as much as to my benefit they use it to, to better their lives as well as my life when you are in that environment of having people constantly push you for the next thing the next thing does that catch does does that feeling of then always wanting the next best thing stick with you? And when you started moving on through that career path and moving on through owning property and assets, were you then always tenacious to look for the next thing? I'm trying to get on the road of how you got to the point where you're stood in front of a TV camera with your own TV show. Oh, before I got there, I went broke. So you were humbled a bit by money. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it didn't all... It wasn't all sweetness and light, you know, every things, I went down a path of working so hard, not only for me, I, I met this amazing uh, girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, uh, we've been together forever, me and Michelle, over 35 years we've been together now, and uh, I met my, my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, it, when I was in the car trade, working hard, and uh, she is the same, you've met Michelle this morning briefly. Uh, she's a grafter. She come out. First thing she did was graft. Uh, she's a grafter, and uh, she's got the same work ethic as me. And uh, we were both pulling in the same direction. But me and Michelle, at the time, we pushed ourselves too far. You know, there was, there's always something better. Let's get a bigger car. Let's get a bigger house. Let's go on a better holiday. Uh, let's work harder. Let's work harder. Let's work harder. And I can remember times when me and Michelle working until three, four o'clock in the morning, buying cars in Leeds, driving them back through the centre of London and stopping at the 24-hour bagel uh, bar in Brick Lane to go and put something in your mouth at four o'clock in the morning with all the drunks and the policemen uh, just to put something in your mouth uh, to carry on the next day, you know, to, to work the next day and not and not thinking about the consequences of that. And the consequences were we got ourselves up to a unsustainable level that when we had the thing uh, back in the, remember it was 90s, I think it was, or 80s, called Black uh, Black Wednesday or Black Friday. And uh, no, not Black Friday, that's the thing. That's the thing now. That's, that's, that's a, thing a now. cyber thing yeah, now, that is. It was Black Wednesday, I think it was, which was uh, interest rates went to 15%. My mum has told me about yeah, this Yeah, the before. market crashed. Interest rates went to 15% in a day. We're sitting on a sizable property with, a, at the time, you know, a, a £1,500 mortgage, which we could manage each month. Uh, back then, you know, which was a lot of money back then, uh, the mortgage went from 1500 quid to, like, seven grand in a day. And uh, that was us. Me, at exactly the same time, Michelle got terribly sick in the hospital. She had got meningitis. Uh, so Michelle got taken into hospital, car sales stopped, 
mortgage rates went through the roof. It was this combination of things, and it culminated uh, with us going broke. Uh, and uh, so all of that work, all of that success, all of that, everything that went before was a rug that was just swept from under my feet and taken away. Uh, and the only thing we had left, me and Michelle, was, and this is the weirdest story ever, was a suitcase with our clothes in it, one suitcase, and a inherited dog on a piece of string and a dog bowl and 37 pence and... We found ourselves tipped out on the street, not knowing what to do. That is probably one of the biggest resets anybody can it possibly massive, imagine. It was a massive reset. What age did you say that would have been? Would you have been mid I would have been 20? 27 years of age. Mid-20s, when yeah. you think you've built it all in your early yeah, 20s. Had, and had the world, out. had everything. Had the cars, had the house, had the... Wow, that resonates the girlfriend, for me. pretty stunning girlfriend, had everything, 27 years of age you know, holidaying in Spain and, you know, we, we, we had it all and in one minute and literally 24 hours later, we had zero. We had nothing at all and a massive debt as well of a mortgage that we couldn't pay anymore. And uh, that was that was pretty tough times. So in the weeks that followed that, mentally, what does that do to you? Were you hungry or broken? Completely hungry. No, I, this is Reset Brewer, you know, Mark two. Uh, this is you've been there, you've experienced that. Let's not do that again. Uh, let's not make that same mistake. How'd you get it back? Uh, and I got it back through. If I told you the story, you'd think I'm absolutely making it up because you it, still have the job right at the car sales dealership. There's no point. The car okay. it finished. Right. Okay. It finished. Nobody was buying cars. It was over. You know, I was at that time. I was running a huge, great big four by four centre in London called Gulliver's that I'd help uh, build and set up uh, for Peter and John, these two guys. I was running that at that time. And, uh, the, the, you know, you're selling cars that are 30, 20, 30 grand uh, in time of crisis when there's a economic crisis. The first thing that's going to go by the wayside is the, the house, the yacht and the car. So nobody was buying cars. And uh, that ended very quickly. That business, within weeks, it was gone. Uh, so no, there's a now a massive reset and, uh, how do I reset it? How do I get it back? And there is a chandelier in this story that is the most bizarre thing ever. It's almost like, I don't want to tell you cause it sounds bullshit. It does actually sound like something out of a John Sullivan episode of Only Fools and Horses, but it's genuinely true. I did think earlier on in our conversation, I was picturing Delbo. Rodney at the market because that's all I've got in terms of the visual a, image to there picture is a, it again. absolute honest to God on my life on my family's life moment that is so I can swear fucking ridiculous that it is it can only be true so when I sold when we had lost everything we had the house we had to hand back to the mortgage company but they asked us to get rid of all the furniture in the house they wanted the house empty and uh, we had to hand it back during the sale of the house you get a a form from your solicitor that says what you're leaving behind you know you're leaving the radiators the light bulbs the carpet the curtains you know what you're leaving behind and me and michelle she was just out of hospital uh she was still very poorly um we were sitting there one night saying are we leaving the dishwasher are we leaving this and we're ticking this you still do it today we're ticking this big 
you know, form. And we got to the bit with the chandelier and the two side lights that were in the drawing room of this house that were in the house when we bought it. And when we got to the chandelier and the two side lights, Michel said, I'm not too sure, maybe we should take those. And I just said, okay, leave that blank for now. Um, are we leaving the, the hallway carpet? And we just carried on. So on the day we were told that um, we have to hand the house over, we was walking down Wallington High Street in Surrey with a suitcase, a dog and a piece of string, 37 pence. We walked into, uh, I walked Michelle into bakery that made coffee and sat Michelle down with the dog and 30p, 37p, whilst I walked across to the solicitor's office and handed them the keys to the house. That was it, that we're done. Not knowing full well what's going to happen for the rest of the day. I know I've got a family, and I know I've got people I can lean upon, and they're all in the same area. So I was thinking, you know, we'll have somewhere to sleep tonight. Um, so the solicitor, he said, okay, um, take the keys. We'll just go through this final form, sign over the house. And, you know, this is selling, signing over the house is also putting me in a massive debt. That's what I'm doing, because I owe the mortgage company all this money. Uh, because they've sold the house on the as a fire sale in a you know to some couple that are moving in that day this couple going to move in that day so uh there i am signed going through this form and signing it and it gets to the page where a month earlier six weeks earlier the chandelier and the two side lamps the box isn't ticked so i said to the solicitor i haven't completely moved out yet and he said well the people are taking taking this house at about one o'clock this afternoon once their money's transferred. What do you mean? And I said, well, as you can see, I've left the chandelier and the two side lights there. And he went, okay, uh, well, you've, you've literally got an hour to get them out. They're, gonna, they're coming to get the keys from my office. As soon as the money's in the account, they're coming to get the keys and they're moving in. And I said, ah, okay, um, I'll, I'll work it out. So I signed the forms, left, went across to the baker's, uh, Michelle sitting there halfway through a cup of coffee, I had a Motorola 8500X. You wouldn't know what that is, but it's a phone that... Picturing looks, a dark it's, blue brick. It's a brick phone. And I phoned my brother Terry, who lived up in Banstead, and I said, can you bring your little van and stepladder? Come meet me at Coughlin's Baker, Baker's in Wallington. I just need your help. And he said, yeah, on my way. So Terry come down. We went back to the house. And by the time he got there and we get back to the house, there's a removal van outside and the people are now starting to move their furniture in. So we walked in with a stepladder with the removal men carrying a, you know, sofa. And we went into the drawing room and I put the ladder down and I stood on top of it and put a screwdriver in the socket. And this woman appeared and she went, who are you? Get out of my house. And I said, no, sorry, it's, I haven't moved out yet. Who are you? Who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm the previous owner. She went, get down off that ladder. Get out of my house. I'm phoning the police. I said, well, phone who you like. It's I, I still haven't moved out. I think you'll find, you know, I'm you're moving in before I've moved out. And she went, no, you've moved out. It's gone. We've got the we've got the keys. I said, yeah, but if you see, I still haven't taken my chandelier on my lights. And she went, they're staying with the house. They are part of the house. I said, well, actually, they're, they're not. So she screamed for her husband, who was moving furniture around in some other part of the house. He appeared. She made him get his uh, briefcase and his paperwork out, and he got the paperwork out, and as he's flicking through it, he went, oh, yeah, they, they didn't tick that. That's that's theirs. So I'm still up the ladder with my screwdriver in the, in the screw, and she said, I, I, we'll buy it. 
and I said, oh, I couldn't sell it. And this is the the survival mode kicks in then. I I said, I can't sell it. It's a part of my family. It's, you know, it's with me forever. It's part of my family. And she went, I have to have it. We have to have it. And uh, come down off the stepladder, we'd discuss it. I come down, my brother, Terry, is sort of standing behind me, holding onto the stepladder, watching his, watching his smaller brother at work here. And uh, she said, how much have I got to give you for it? And I, I still today, I genuine, I have no idea where it has come from. No idea. Where it come from, how I come up with a figure, how it works. The valuation. The process. valuation. I have not, I'm not Drew Pritchard. I don't know the valuation of a, of a chandelier. I have no idea. But I just said four grand. And she looked at me and went, you're being absolutely ridiculous. And I said, find another. He's a big chandelier. I said, find another one. I said, that is from, I, I said, I, think, I said, it's from Paris or somewhere. <laughs> I said, it was in the house when we bought it. I said, find another one. And I said, or oh, I'm taking it. And she looked at her husband. She went, write him out, Jack. I just, it's got to stay. Write him out, Jack. And he went to write me out a check. And I knew if he gives me a check, that's me stuffed. That's going straight to the bank and it's going straight to a mortgage company. So I said, no, you can't write me out a check. I need cash. And she went, need to be ridiculous. Do you think we have four grand in cash? And I said, well, um, where'd your bank? And uh, they banked at Bradford and Bingley Building Society, which was opposite the bakery where I'd left Michelle, the bakers. So I said, uh, can we just go down to the bank and get the cash out? And she looked at her husband and he sort of shrugged his shoulders. And I said goodbye to my brother, Terry. I then got this guy to drive me back to Wallet and High Street, marched him into Bradford and Bingley, stood behind him at the counter as I made him extract £4,000, and they put it in a, a little bag, like a netted bag. And then I shook his hand, said goodbye to him, wandered back across the road, walked into Michelle, who's now drained her cup of coffee, and put a brick of money in front of her and said, start again, shall we? And that was us starting all over again, that very... It sounds bullshit, doesn't it? It sounds like a Ron Sullivan, John Sullivan story, but it's the God's honest truth. I went and bought a Renault 5 GT Turbo and a Peugeot 205 oh. put a GTI with that money and I flipped them into double the money. You know what then? I actually think this is quite appropriate. When I started uh, watching Wheeler Dealers, I was a little bit of a later grower to it and I started on the Trading Up series when you ended up with a Ferrari. Yeah. There were 17 deals in that series and throughout the rest of your career, when if you start all the way back, wouldn't even think you'd be able to guess how many car deals you must have done. But do you think a deal on a chandelier is potentially the most important deal you've ever done it in your was life? The, it, that was the turning point. That was the, we had hit as low as we could possibly get, me and Michelle. She was held on to my hand, held, stayed with me. This stunning girl that could have had any guy, but no, she loved me and she knew, uh, you know, we could we could do this. And uh, Michelle gripped on onto me and I didn't want to lose her, uh, but I didn't want to, I was embarrassed, you know, I'd, I'd promised this girl the earth you know and I was embarrassed so there was this was survival and it really was survival you know kicked in and it was every skill I'd learned up until that point you know I've told the story in a very condensed way but there was a lot to that story there was a lot of convincing a lot of you know uh, salesman's techniques or whatever anything and I, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed you know I feel for these people but they did buy a bloody cheap house you know they bought a house through my misfortune, unfortunately. Um, 
And uh, no, so I didn't feel guilty at the time. I felt good about it at the time. But what that did, that four grand, is that afternoon we got in a taxi, uh, went to look at free properties, uh, rented, yeah, went to look at free properties to rent, uh, rented a house, uh, also in Wallington, uh, which was £600 a month. I gave a month's rent in advance, a month's, uh, a month's rent, a month's deposit, and a month's rent in advance, 1800 quid. So I had 2200 quid. That night, I asked my brother Terry to come pick me up again. We went down to Dingwall's car auctions, the scumbucket car auction back then, as it was known. Uh, went down there, I bought a 205 Peugeot 1.9 uh, GTI and a uh, Renault 5 GT Turbo, both white. Uh, bought a bucket, bought a sponge, bought ferry liquid, bought a beanbag. Me and Michelle slept on a beanbag in his empty house that night. The next day, we cleaned the absolute life out of these two cars. Like, you could not believe we just spent two days in the sunshine just literally washing every... You clean them beyond belief. Uh, and I advertised them in the free ads newspaper. Back then, there was a free ads paper called Loot. Uh, and sold them for double what I paid for them. And uh, I can remember me and Michelle three weeks later... It was only three weeks later, we had a part-furnished house. We had a bed, a kettle, plates, cups. We had a part-furnished house, and we had five grand in a... She had a little attachy case, Michelle. We had five grand in a attachy case, and we'd paid our bills. And I said to Michelle, let's let's never go back there again. This is the beginning of us. And, and it was, you know, up at, Michelle met me, and I was successful. She seen me at the worst times, and then it was from there. Me and Michelle built this amazing life together uh, by just putting her head down and getting on with it and pulling in the same direction. That sounds like the biggest reset anybody could possibly yeah, go through ever. But sometimes, uh, and I've learned this myself, that a blank canvas is sometimes the best place to start something new. How long? You mentioned three weeks until you had a part furnished house. How many weeks was it until the cheeky Mike Brewer was back? It was back immediately because it had to be. I had to turn it on to be able to buy and sell as quickly as possible. And uh, it was, again, me and Michelle are back on the road. We're literally buying cars. I was buying cars in Scotland to drive back to London in the middle of the night just to take the tax off the windscreen. You could cash in the tax disc back then. It didn't matter. To me, none of that mattered. It just mattered that we were back and we were working together and we were earning money together and we could create a life together. And that was the important thing. And uh, within, it was a very short period of time, you know, it was within a year of being at that house. It was Royston Avenue, Wallington, whoever's watching this might go, oh, I know where that is. It was in a year of being at that house, uh, me and Michelle had cleared that of the old house and put a deposit down on a on our brand new home. Um, which was the home that we always say that was our lucky house when we bought a house uh, that we owned and the second house we owned. We call it our lucky house because everything sort of changed from that moment. We decided to create our own business, have our own car site, um, have our own staff, have people come and work with us rather than us go and work for other people. And it was at that moment our life changed and we had a daughter and you know things just developed and evolved from there. And that's where we grew up. Literally, we, we were kids and we just become 
adults and uh, we grew up from that moment onwards. Some people, myself definitely included, have sometimes share a problem to solve a problem a little bit. Lean on others. When I grew up, I always used to lean on my dad, but unfortunately I lost him and I had to start leaning on myself a little bit more. But throughout that period, the Great Mike Brewer reset, I think we'll now refer to it. What did your mum and dad think seeing you go from that big reset to suddenly being in a position where you've got all these cars on a lot? Uh, pride. Mum and dad uh, were f- filled with pride, immense pride. And and I can see that today, you know, still with them today. Uh, I, fortunately, all my brothers and sisters, there's six of us. One, My brother passed away, unfortunately. So, you know, one of my brothers is, is no longer with us. But fortunately, we, we were born in Brixton, born and bred in Brixton. We were all urchins growing up. You know, we were kids that would nick a bag of sweets from a sweet shop or steal a newspaper for your dad because we had no choice. That was survival uh, back then. But we've all grown up, every one of us has grown up to be a really good, genuine, loving, caring, kind person. You know, none of us have grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. And, um, and I can see that in my parents. When I look at my parents, I can see the pride in them over the family, you know, over what they've created. And, you know, then that uh, uh, these families have created more families and more families. So, you know, it's quite a brood of brewers out there now. There's quite a, quite a mass of us. Uh, and it all comes from my mum and dad who, who had this genuine work ethic and bonds to hold a family together and, and create goodness. You know, my, da- my dad... You know, for a 16-year-old kid who was mental on scooters and going up and down the country and could have easily, I could have easily been on the wrong side of tracks, you know. Yeah, back then people were smoking crap and snorting crap and whatever, and I could have easily done any of that stuff and been down that path, you know. Could have easily done that. But I remember my dad, at 16 years of age, sitting me on the staircase in our house and saying, just always do the right thing, never do the wrong thing, you'll be fine, you're a good kid. And uh, just, I'm telling you now, before you grow up into an adult, just remember, just always, if it feels wrong, don't do it. If it feels right, do it. And my, I remember that from my dad. And I thought, wow, that was, that was a moment. He sort of sat me. It, was, it wasn't my birds and the bees chat with my dad. He didn't walk me around the block and say, there's this thing called a dick and there's a hole. He didn't have that chat with you know, me. Dad, I've already discovered yeah, I've that. that. I'm fine. <laughs> he didn't have that chat with me. He had this sort of moment where he sat me down and told me about right and wrong and good and bad. And um, I've lived by that ever since. I've lived by his, his mantra of just always be good. You know, be good to people, be kind, be generous and be loving. And I've been that person all my life. You know, that's who I am. Uh, so, you know, people out there, they don't know that. They think I'm some ogre and, you know, I fire my mechanics left, right and centre. They think I'm that person, but it's, that's not the truth. We'll get on to it later, but there's actually people I've spoke to that definitely wouldn't have that view of you. But before we end up jumping a story, what I'd like to do is fast forward slightly and figure it's a long out story, how this one. that great been around reset a long time, yeah. ended up on wheeler dealers okay so it starts before that so uh i'm a car dealer i'm doing really well in south london uh, me and michelle are flying we've got a business that we're thriving i'm trying new things things that dealers haven't done or thought of before uh things like uh traveling to uh traveling to europe and buying cars that are left-hand drive only cars in europe bringing them back to the uk and 
market numbers left-hand drive only cars so bmw m3 bmw z1 uh fiat marchettas of course yeah so i i was you know if you wanted integrale uh and lots of people did they were only available as left-hand drive cars so i focused in on that and i was traveling abroad and buying cars i traveled uh um to japan and bought suzuki vitaras and imported i just tried everything basically and create the thriving business a really good thriving business and um it was when i was flying me and michelle were banging along and we're flying i uh i get a, a phone call one day from a young lady this is a world said story by the way so uh, I'm, I'm sure people have heard it i apologize uh, but i get a phone call from the young lady asking me about golf gti i give her all the details and she says uh well actually i'm not ringing about the golf really i'm ringing from a tv company we're i'm from channel four we're putting a tv show together called deals and wheels uh, this is 1997 and uh but you weren't in born was you no yeah, so you weren't inborn. How scary is that? That's terrifying. So when you quizzed me on the information, I wasn't even here. <laughs> it's so terrifying. So, uh, yeah, 1997, she asked me um, about this golf. I'll give her the details. She said she's calling from Channel 4. She loves what I said on the phone. Could she come and see me? I said no. But she turned up anyway with the camera. Uh, she made me, forced me to do a little review of a 205 GTI that I had in the showroom. Did you say no? I said no because actually we were fine. Me and Michelle were fine. We I had no desire. There were four channels. You know, there was four. There was ITV, BBC One, Two, and Channel Four. Uh, there was no, I had no desire to be on television. Didn't, didn't bother me at all. I I had this car business, and me and Michelle were putting out. We put our life back together. Uh, we're building life. We've got a kid. You know, we're 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 fine. We're absolutely fine. Uh, so to have this. Inter uh, interference from somebody else saying do you, do you mind if we talk to you about TV TV is a thing that sat in the corner of my room it was nothing that I ever thought that you know I'd be on or that had no desire for it uh, but anyway she turned up with a camera she walked me she made forced me to walk around the car and I did and then she said look you're great I'm going to take it back to show the bosses and I said whatever I don't care so uh, do you want to buy the car you know can I see the golf she went no <laughs> but anyway that was that and then uh, a couple of weeks later she said like the bosses love you they want you to come in for a screen test and I said still no absolutely not and uh, she then explained what the show was it was about people buying and selling their cars and uh, they wanted a car dealer in the show to show how a car dealer buys and sells cars and I utterly refused I, I, I was saying I'm not going to show the public how i buy and sell cars i don't want to be doing it you know yeah no, i get that i'm not doing that and she went that no, but you'll be really great here and you're honest and you're fun and you know people will love it and i'm like there's no way i'm doing it and me and michelle discussed it at length and there was no way we were going to do it so i didn't um but what i did do is she kept phoning me or the production team kept phoning me for advice uh over the course of like four month period they were like eh, look we're gonna go and see an austin maestro and a guy's selling it, and uh, what should what should we know about it? And I I'd steer clear, you know, don't go near that, and you don't want to put that on the TV show. People, you know, have quite bad cars, and that was then. And then she'd phone up, or somebody would phone up, you know, hello, my name's Darren, I'm phoning from Channel 4, we're putting deals and wheels together. 
um, what do you know about the BMW E30 316, 318? And I go, yeah, great car, really good feature. If it's two door, it's even better. Uh, if it's got TRX alloys, it's really good. Da, 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 da. So I'd, I'd have those conversations with people. And uh, that was it. I just sort of offered free advice. And then uh, four or five months later, I get a phone call from this lady called Celia, the original lady. She says, look, we've made the show. We've finished it. It's done. And I went, oh, right, okay, great. And she said, but now we've changed tack. We're thinking of actually having a presenter link it. You know, instead of you being a, a part of the show, uh, showing how you do your job, we want somebody authentic to talk about the cars authentically to the audience. And I said, well, I had Jeremy Clarkson bloke on that Top Gear. She said, exactly that would you come along for a screen test? And, and me and Michelle then discussed that, and I went, look, she, she was quite persistent, this lady. She said, you'll be great, you'll be great. So I went along to this um, fake car showroom called Deals and Wheels in East London, and uh, they had a couple of cars set up in there, an MG Midget and a and Nissan Bluebird, and um, there was a few other sort of well-known TV presenters in line for the job, also trying for it. And I just sort of walked in, I had a t-shirt on, pair of jeans, didn't give a shit. This was just, you know, for fun. And um, spoke in the camera. They say treat them mean, keep them clean. Yeah, well, I didn't even do that. I just didn't, I sort of, it was interference. You know, I want to get back to me car site and sell cars. And uh, I, I spoke and uh, everyone laughed. And they think, you're fucking great. And I went, shut up. And they went, no, you've got to do this. I spoke about the MG Midget. I said, if you want to buy an MG Midget and want to get some money off us, it's really easy. So an MG Midget, all you do is you go for a test drive with the person you're buying the car from and uh, with the roof up, you know, go for a test drive and then just take it for a car wash. And you'll get money off. Trust me, you'll get money off because uh, it will just rain inside the car and you can tell. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com that to the uh, to the person who's sitting next to you trying to sell it to you uh, and they laughed their heads off and then I said about Nissan Bluebird I said uh, Nissan Bluebird is the only car you want to see when you pour out a nightclub at two o'clock in the morning with an area on its boot lid because it's the most reliable taxi that's going to get you home and they they thought uh, rather than me talk about the car as a Nissan Bluebird I spoke about its purpose and they thought it was great and they offered me the job so I I they offered me 200 pound a show working in Catford across a week. So I thought, £1,000 for a week doing this show. I'm right, I'm doing it. And uh, so, yeah, I went along to this fake car showroom in Catford 
and did this little weeny tiny little show on Channel 4 called Deals and Wills in 1997. And uh, by week three on air, when it went out later on that year, by week three, it was the highest rated factual program in their history. Uh, so by week four, I had a certain member of uh, Top Gear uh, contact me and offered me a job there. And that was me in TV. So I went back to Channel 4 and said, I've been offered this job in BBC. And Channel 4 said, no way, you're staying with us. And they commissioned the next series, the next series, and then Driven, uh, which was the sort of Top Gear replacement, if you like. And uh, that, you're asking me about deals and wills. Uh, sorry, wheelie dealers. And that continued uh, from 97 till, yeah, to 2002. And then my I finished my contract at Channel 4. They offered me another contract. I went, actually, I'm going to see what else is out there. I was still buying and selling cars, by the way, on the side. I'll see what else is out there. And there was this tiny little company that were digging for gold or filming gorillas in mountains called Discovery Channel. Been running for five years. Tiny little company. And uh, Discovery Channel said, look, come up with a car show. There's uh, you and these two other guys, Dan and Mike. Why don't you uh, do a car show together? Come up with something. And uh, Dan and Mike had this idea for, a, and I, it was an item that I'd actually done on Deals and Wheels uh, where I showed you how to buy, restore and sell a car. It's the first time ever on the planet it had ever been done. So I showed you how to do that. And then from that genesis of that idea, we created Wheeler Dealers. And that's the very first ever car flipping show on the planet. And uh, that was in 2002. It aired in 2003. And little did I think that 20 years later, I'd be sat in the back of your van still talking about it um, because it grew to become the biggest car show on the planet. It's just quite phenomenal. It's quite incredible. What makes a good podcast is asking how, why, when, and who. And what I get from that is why would you leave Channel 4, one of the biggest TV channels, one of the only TV channels, to go and work with a tiny little company because I, I'm picturing cocky, outgoing, right, suddenly also getting a bit of a spark that you probably enjoyed doing that show as well, which is why you were then looking for the next thing and the next thing. Why? Control. Um, it was all about control. I knew that if I went back to work for Channel 4 BBC, it was not me. It was going to be in the control of somebody else. Where with the Discovery deal, it was a tiny little company. Good job I stepped into that role because it's now the biggest media company on the planet. You know, Discovery Warner Brothers, and I'm still there. Um, and I feel part of that growth, you know, for, for that company. Um, when I uh, when I took on the role of Wheeler Dealers, it was a chance of freedom. It was almost like, um, you know, I don't want to say it because it's a bit cheesy to say. It's almost like, you know, when you sign a record contract like George Michael did, and then he writes the album Freedom, you know, the song Freedom, because he's free of his record contract. It was almost a bit like that, this freedom. And it was like, you can create something. You can have some creative control over your destiny and what you want to do on screen. And I'd been, in my period of time on Driven uh, and Deals and Wills, and you can talk to Jason Plato, Penny Mallory, I was incredibly creative during that period of time. I was I wanted to push the boundaries. Why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? Let's do that storyline. You know, I was I'd learned I learned things very quickly, and I'd learned the craft of television and what the audience wanted very quickly. Uh, so when somebody 
gives you the opportunity to this tiny little company gives you the opportunity to craft your own destiny if you like uh and you go i've got a chance to actually do something that i'm really good at doing here you know i can i can do this and i was working with two really cool guys dan and mike who were uh phenomenal producers and um you know we could craft something together and they you know is fundamentally it was their production company and their show but they they listened to me and i listened to them and we'd work and craft ideas together and we found ed china and we'd work as a as a unit and we would work out what to do with ed and how to feature him and and it just become it become our own baby it become my baby and i'll be honest with you that very first series was an interim for me this was let me go and do this why i work out what's next you know next i'm going to be back on channel four next i'm going to be headlining bbc next i'm going to be headhunted by itv that's going to be next but no this little weeny show that we started caused so much stir in that first first series that it created this new genre of car restoration shows it's created its own its own market its own its own part in the car culture and uh, now this whole network's dedicated to car renovation and they can all go back to that one show wheeler dealers it's quite interesting because when someone like me does research or starts to put together an episode and a persona the thing is when we see things, especially my age group, as they are now a lot of the times. When you do, when you Wikipedia Mike Brewer and look down, you see uh, the Discovery Channel took Brewer on and allowed him to do a show together. What you don't think of until you actually hear the detail is the Discovery Channel wasn't the Discovery Channel as we see it today. It was this this smaller being. But today, that would probably be similar, those opportunities, the fact that people can have YouTube channels because they can have their own freedom. So that was essentially the kind of offer that it was back then was allowing to have some own freedom to be able to film something. I was you 20 years ago. That's exactly, I was Tavarish. I was Matt Armstrong. I was you guys 20 years ago. That's what it was. You know, this, there was no internet. You know, back then there was no internet. It was MySpace. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no X. There was none of that. There's no YouTube. Didn't exist. There was no way to get your platform out there, your medium out there. Uh, this was, I was you. I was, wow, I've got an opportunity to create something here and be a part of this thing, create a movement, uh, which is what all those people I just mentioned, Tavares, Matt, and you, and Auto Alex, this is what they've done. They've created something. I just did it through a telebox in the corner where you've done it through a, a computer that's on somebody's lap. And it's funny because everybody at the minute where we are is talking about how the biggest craze on YouTube, Tavarish, Matt Armstrong, guys that have been on the podcast, is in the crashed, damaged supercar restoration. Everyone's like, you know, who could have seen it coming? It's blown up on YouTube. It's the thing that's been... And when I was actually putting this episode together, it just hit me square in the face. And I thought, well, hang on, it's been done for 20 years because we, the dealers, were doing yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's been done for, uh, you know, t actually 20 six years because i did it on deals and wheels so it's been done you know it's it, it's been done we i yeah I, I don't want to sound facetious but we created it you know we created this genre of there was nothing else on the planet like it you know you know we create this genre of uh, genre of car restoration and flipping uh car shows and i think for wheeler dealers the success of that because it was the first it's the og and because it was the first it was 
it was stayed true to its roots. You know, it's always been the same show, buy a car, fix up, sell it. Um, and we, we've focused, fundamentally, we focused on the everyman. You know, Matt and Savarish have, have gone for the aspirational. You know, that's the aspirational person. You go, you're, you're saying to an everyman, you can have a Lamborghini, you can have a Ferrari, if you buy one that's fucked and you put your work in and you can build it yourself, you can have that car. Where I was, different time, I'm going, you can have a, um, you know, a BMW E30, a Touring, you can have a better car than the car that you've currently got or the car that you haven't even thought of um, if you just buy it and sell and do it the right way and you fix the car up the right way. So it's fundamentally, you know, I, I kept it for the everyman. They've gone for the aspirational market. It's actually similar to your friend uh, Alex's channel to Alex. Shitboxes. Basically, yeah. And I, I don't want to get ahead of myself yet. I was going to save this for later, but I think it's appropriate while we're on the subject of Alex because as we move on, we'll also get to the, the fact that, you know, having something as big as what Wheeler Dealers has become, you, you deal with a lot of hate at the minute online i can see that it does happen and it, it's savage really savage but i actually spoke to your um good friend last night on the phone and alex said a quote to me he said mike brewer is quite simply one of the most lovely human beings i've ever met and without mike i wouldn't have taken the step to start my own channel i wouldn't have taken the step to leave car throttle it's actually quite hard for me to sit on the other side of this desk and not interrupt sometimes. But earlier on, you spoke about taking a step, taking a huge step to leave and also do your own thing, to have more freedom to move away from Channel 4 and go to your own little network. And then I could actually see why that quote means so much to a friend like Alex. And he said it's such a shame that because Mike gets so much hate online for what simply was a feud on a car show or, or a split up or a breakup, which is all people focus on. The UK is typically a really negative nation. But Alex, someone that has huge amount of love and 99.9% positive feedback online, um, describes you as one of the loveliest people he's ever met and he wouldn't be where he was without his channel. That's very sweet of him. It's really nice. And I love Alex and, you know, I love Tavarish and I love you and I love everyone. The car guys and... I don't get it. You know, I just don't get the, the shit that we have to, you're going to suffer online and you will. And Alex is suffering, no doubt, online. I just don't get it. You know, we just guys that fix up cars. It's as simple as that. That's all I do. I fix up cars for a living. I don't hurt anyone. I don't stab anyone. And there was no feud. There was no split up. There was no disagreement. There was nothing. Everyone just has this. You can, there's a thousand YouTube videos. The truth behind Wheeler Dealers out there. Nothing happened. A guy left his job. That's it. A guy was working one day, and then the next day he went, hey, this ain't for me anymore. Do you know what? I'm going to go and do my own thing. And he left. Um, what he did is he left, and then he slagged it off. And that's what happened. But I didn't respond to that. Nobody else responded to it. We don't... It, it, I love it. I love him to bits, and I wish him all the best. He's an amazing guy. Um, but there's no feud. There's no, no story behind it. There's no fake internet videos there's none of that bullshit there's no, none of that exists or happens but still today i will wake up this morning like i did i'll wake up tomorrow morning my uh my social media pages will be full of people calling me a as the you know a c-u-n-t whatever it is or 
uh, and saying, bring back Ed, fuck you, I don't watch your show, bring back Ed. And that'd be seven years later, you know, seven years ago. But, you know, I don't care. I simply don't. I'm way beyond that. I've created a new series of Wheeler Dealers, not only with Ants, but with Elvis, that is three times the figures globally that we ever had with Ed China. And it's phenomenal. You know, it's here. We've done, I, I proved that you can grow. Uh, you can just keep growing something, even through adversity. And there was no adversity, but you can still keep growing. If you stay true to your roots, you stay true to your your passion and your enthusiasm and the love of, for the car. Just stay true to that and um, don't wane off of it and follow the path and uh, it will reward you. And it has. Okay. And this is me uh, being a being an interviewer and being a host, not being someone that wants to piss you off. So I say I'm going to watch my eyes over here, the other side, of the mic a little bit. But there's no doubt, and we've got plenty of time to go on and talk about it. The amount of success that you've had in your career, and it's unbelievably inspirational. And as we just said, the UK in particular is definitely a negative nation. So we'll only cover the negative bit for a short period of time, or the negative bit that is perceived. To be negative because as you said you still get those comments seven years on and what's frustrating is it seems to me that you put the answers out there the answers are out there yet the comments still come in and it is a fact that when i googled search terms around wheeler dealers the most googled search term is why did mike had mike brewer and ed china fall out we didn't that's the bit that seems so weird because you described yourself in another interview as you guys would grab hotel rooms together, go out for drinks, go out for Best friends. Mate. Best mate's family. Yeah, you say you didn't fall out, but when was the last time you saw Ed? Seven years ago. Why? He didn't want to be a part. He didn't want to be a wheeler dealer anymore. It's as simple as that. There's no controversy or mystery behind it. One day he was a wheeler dealer. The next day, he wasn't. He just didn't want to do it anymore. And he didn't want a part of that world. He didn't want a part of my life. He wanted to, he wanted to do his own thing. And there's nothing I could do to change that. You know, I cried the day he left. Cried my eyes out. I had a conversation with him on the phone. When I when that was over, I cried my eyes out. Saying, you know, how much I'm going to miss him. And how much I love the guy. But he just left. And there's nothing I can do about that. Couldn't change it. Um, and he, he has no uh, desire to call me i was uh, you know i said right at the very beginning of this i've been used through my life by people you know for what i can achieve and i realize you know if there is any controversy or you want to make something up what is going to be another youtube video mike Brewer said this uh, yeah i felt you know i feel sort of i was used i was a tool in that period of time to you know create a career and that's fine that's fine i'm fine with that i've done it for hundreds of people thousands of people um, you know, also Alex told you that he wouldn't have done what he wouldn't have done without me. So it's, you know, there's, there's no real difference in that. So, um, you know, for me, I, I, there's, there's nothing. There's no, it's like people are trying to find a story that doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist. Which has been said before, yet the comments come in. So let me just start. Let me just put it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Because there's a chance from this that we could reduce some of those comments. I doubt it. Why do you believe that Ed was a friend to you and to you, you were a colleague to Uh Because I was a means to an end. 
Simple as that. Simple as that. I'm a means to an end. Because I have, I've had some absolutely blazing arguments with my your, my producer Sean, who works on this podcast. We've had some right tear ups. My dad, when he was alive, when he was, was I've had some right tear ups. My dad, you said you didn't have any tear ups, but I've also had those Cold War disagreements that bubble in the background no, with them. Never had an argument. Never had a disagreement. Never, you know, the last time I went with, uh, I was with Ed. We were in Paris together. Drinking, getting drunk in a Paris hotel room where I'd just given him um, a gig that he needed money. I didn't need the money. So I'd given him a gig. Uh, people don't know any of this stuff. But, you know, we got drunk together, hugged at the end of it. You know, that was the last time I see him. And then the internet happened. You know, then people uh, start to make up stuff. I mean, there's a video out there. Mike Brewer says shit about Ed China. It's the sensationalist headline of that video is the damaging part because if you actually watch the video, I say nothing. I say, yeah, I worked with Ed and uh, he became a star of a show. And because he became a star, he had total sort of control and, and then he decided to leave. That's not saying shit about anybody. That's just me saying stuff uh, that actually happened. But it's people focusing on clickbait, on sensationalist headlines. And yeah, I mean, that's... That's a damaging video, but nothing happened. Like, literally, nothing. He was there one I minute, understand. gone the next. Does, does Ed get shit from your audience? I doubt it. Um, no, there is a... He has a... You know, for Ed... And I was around it. You know, I was with the guy for 13 years. I was around it. He's tall. He's six foot seven. He's got wild hair. Uh, people would literally smash a car into a tree to cross the road to grab hold of him and shake his hand and say, you're the best mechanic on the planet. I love you. You're amazing. So um, he has this weird, uh, great for him, you know, fantastic. Warm, attractive personality. Well, he has this weird uh, audience uh, that will just, li I mean, I've watched Ed do stuff since, which is unproduced stuff. And I watched it online and I've been shocked by what I've seen. And I don't want to put it down because, you know, God bless him. He's got a rare living. Um, but it was not the Ed that I would know would let happen. You know, there'd be something he would do on a car. It would never let happen in the Wheeler Dealer days. It's not good enough. But it's happened on, on you know, videos that I've seen these do. And I'm like, hey, you know, why why would you do that? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm, I don't really want to carry on talking about the guy. Seven years ago, it's like talking about no, a, I understand. A, a girlfriend you had seven years I'm ago. I'm just trying to think that there's so many positive things that have happened in my life since. You know, um, I suppose this it's actually kind of making me smile this bit, which is if you take another car TV show like Top Gear, Clarkson was always the character that divided opinion and he was always sort of the face of the three guys on the show, but he always was the one that ended up yeah. divided opinion. Yeah, and I've never seen anyone hate on James May, no. And it's actually no. a little bit of a... Do you yeah. see how I'm yeah, kind of putting those Ed two things it, together? In, in fact, there's two things, right? Um, number one is, I wish I was still mates with Ed. That's what my last question was going right, to be on I this subject. I wish I was still was mates with Ed. Not my calling. That's down to him. Right? I've reached out to him a couple of times. I've reached out to him. He's something I fuck myself, effectively. Uh, because I carried on. You know, simple as that. I created this new thing and carried on. That's what it is. Uh, that's number one. And number two is Ed tells the story better than me as to why he get 
would have got the love and I get the hate. And uh, he summed it up perfectly when we were together. He said, it's pantomime. Wheeler Dealers is pantomime. You're the workhouse boss and I'm the small little, I'm the worker. And you're the workhouse boss. You stroll in and go, where's the car? Is it finished? Give me the money. And, uh, you know, and I'm the one that's doing all the grinding and the and the mechanicing. Um, so it's like pantomime. And that's what it is. And Ed said those words. And, uh, and it always resonated with me that that's what, you know, it is fundamentally a TV show. It's a car show. Entertainment. It's entertainment. That's what it is. And, uh, you know, still today, I, I would get a thousand people say, you lazy bastards, you don't do anything in the programme. Well, no, I'd write it, create it, produce it. Um, yes, yeah, I was going to ask about. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, you know, we get, uh, I, when the cameras ain't uh, turning, I'm diving in. We're all working on the car together. But people don't know that, and people don't see that, and that's fine. I don't care. You know, I, I really don't. It's uh, it it hurts. It's hurtful. What people say is hurtful. Um, but I st- I'm so thick skinned, and I've had so much of it over the years. It sort of passed me by now. Uh, but it still upsets the people around me. You know, my mum, bless her, and my dad, he's on the internet, my dad, he doesn't need to see that nonsense written about me. He doesn't need to see any of that stuff. And when you bet, but you, you pour it all back, you start to peel back what people are saying, how nasty they are, how vindictive people are, and you peel it all back and you go, why, why? Because all I am is a guy that fixes up cars. That's all I do. That's all I do. Fix up cars and entertain people. I don't do anything else to hurt people. So I, don't, I just don't get it. Many people um, talk a lot more these days about mental health, but we mentioned a minute ago that actually when you that, that show started, the beginnings of that, I wasn't even born. So that's the other side of this van from you. Would you say as part of that, you really gained mental resilience or strength or did you have it anyway from times like the great yeah, reset no not at all i've i've literally it's really affected some parts of my life it really has affected uh you know there's been times where i can't get out of bed in the mornings and uh you know i can't focus or i, I it's something so you know there's been a, a, a particular part of abuse that's gone down a dark path and people have jumped on it uh that you know i'll go and smash into a bottle of whiskey and uh, drink yourself into oblivion because I don't want to hear it. And um, it affects my home life and it affects my wife. It affects my my health and my weight. And uh, no, it has done those things. It's it's had an effect. And the mental health side of it is, is yeah, I never thought there was such a thing, mental health. I'm a old generation guy. You know, this, is a, this, is a new, this is a new Gen X thing. Mental health, stress. Uh, but no, no, it has affected me and it has that had an effect on my mental health. But... Fortunately, recently, I have such an amazing bunch of people around me that help me put the show together. Um, they won't allow it. They won't allow Mike Brewer to have any mental health issues. They won't allow Mike Brewer to have a bad day. Uh, nobody will allow it. So every day is filled with love, positivity and fun. You know, we go to work every day and we have just a laugh and create fun. And um, that has been the saviour. That's been the saviour of it all. Plus, I'm good at... Excuse me. I'm good at... Because uh, I don't only do wheeler dealers. I've got car sites. I've got businesses. I've got other things that's going on in my life. I'm good at diversifying. So if wheeler dealers 
the stress of that because I'm getting abuse or whatever is getting on top of me, I will quickly put my attention somewhere else and diversify and focus in on something else uh, and create something if I needed to create something new. And I've done that several times and create businesses and, and, uh, and uh, industry from that. And, uh, and then come back to wheeler dealers and come back to that negativity if I've got it. Um, but you know, um, but it's not all negative. It's not all negative. No, you are, you know, we have got a global audience of over 200 million people and we are talking about a thousand people probably who can't stand. No, it's mad how those thousand people allow this slick through. Yeah. That allowed this. It really is. And it's, you know, I, I've tried every tactic. I've tried reaching out to these people. And saying, look, I know you don't mean it. You're probably having a bad day, and you you, you probably didn't mean what you said. And because you look at that profile picture, they got you know family, and you know some of the stuff is really. I bet most of them have actually walked up to you at shows and told yeah, you that they love hand. it. Yeah, of course mm. they have. Yeah, shaking my hand, of course they have. But um, you know, it's just the internet, isn't it? It's just what we. It, I'll be honest with you as well. It's Facebook. It's not even X or or Instagram. Um, Instagram, no, it's face is. And the Facebook audience is the middle-aged, older audience, Negative. and it and it's just pure jealousy. It's just spawned from jealousy. I'm a regular guy, normal guy. Yeah, I've got an amazing life because I work. You know, they see me on TV, flying around the world, buying and selling cars on social media, standing at parties with people that I'd love to, you know, be around. Uh, they might get a glimpse of my five acres of gardens that you've seen today or my beautiful house and my car they might see that and go why haven't i got that you know i'm a normal guy why that fucker got it and i haven't got it and it spawns jealousy and uh they can have it everyone can have it and that's why we're here to yes, tell the stories everyone can have it because all you gotta do is go off your fat ass stop moaning about it and do it and achieve it that's all it takes it takes work my favourite kinds of entrepreneurs, my favourite kinds of people to me, who I get fired up and inspired about, are these kind of people. Just on it, fucking on it all of the time and spinning God knows how many plays. And then I try to do it myself and I do do it, but I realise how bloody stressful that is. And then I start asking myself all sorts of questions like, why the hell are we doing all this? What is actually the point of all this? Where are we going? But one bit we kind of skirted over because I wanted to let the conversation go that way, but the question I really want to ask is when the TV took off that we spoke about, what happened to the original car dealership? Oh, right, so I run the original car dealership for probably another two years, 18 months, two years. Uh, more of my time was being taken away to do this TV stuff and uh, I left Michelle in charge of that with a couple of salesmen. And then um, slowly but surely the TV work sort of took over and the car stuff just wasn't that important in that period of time. It become it into the come the other way around. TV wasn't the interference. It was the the car stuff become the interference. So we decided to not stop me and Michelle. We decided to pause. So we literally hit the pause button on the car dealerships and uh, focus more on this new. TV career that I've got and uh, what that was giving me you know that was giving me access to uh, at the time I was doing Driven on Channel 4 and it was me reviewing cars all over the planet so I'd be flying to uh, California to drive the latest Ferrari or Porsche or I'd be in Italy with James May you know testing the latest uh, latest uh, Ferrari or whatever it was 
So I was being flown all around the world and it took a lot of time out of the car business and so that stopped. Um, but it was many years later, 2012, no, 2011, um, my wonderful, fantastic wife, who nothing seems to be enough, uh, she went, let's go back in the car trade. Let's open up a car site. And I went, you're kidding. We're flying at the moment and you know we've got this TV career and there's all this other stuff off the back of that uh, that we created. And she went, no, I think um, you need to have your name above the door again and uh, create a car business. So we um, we started a car business in Sheffield, Micro Motors. Uh, at one time, we employed over 130 staff, uh, created this monster of a business uh, that still sells three, 400 cars every single month and got an amazing team that sit behind it and run it for us. So, so how many years has that been going now? Uh, that's on its 11th year now. And Mike what Brewer kind Motors. of motors does Mike Brewer Motors sell? Uh, we sell everything that's uh, nine months uh, or, ye or ye uh, just up to nine months old, basically. Okay, it. so it's yeah. mostly new. It's mostly new, nearly new cars, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did, was there ever, you spent a lot of time in the USA. Yeah, over your career. I actually went there for my first time in my life uh, a few months ago. Yeah, you went to I went, Vegas. I went to see me, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely fucking loved it. And I never thought I would, but I gambled i took vegas by the by the horns and Good i for you. absolutely woke up with a chicken loved it and uh we've just announced that next year we're actually this year sorry um because we're filming this in the previous year but this year sorry 2024 we are taking uh, the road to success around the states and that's actually driven by you talk about your love for people and i've discovered that i really like the american culture american people there seems to be less negativity over there so what keeps you coming back and setting up Mike Brewer Motors in the UK? I know that's where you're born and yeah. live. And why didn't you want to do something necessarily out there? Well, I did. Uh, okay, the truth is, I did. Yeah, I, I'd love to. Uh, I lived in California for six years, and I absolutely loved the place. And SEMA, uh, you know, I did SEMA every year for you know, 10 years. And there's something weird about my SEMA experience. A bit like, you know, I've heard you talk about yours. Uh, for me, I can show you pictures if you like. For me... Walking down towards SEMA and seeing a hundred foot picture of me on the side of a building, so Mike Brewer is at SEMA. Uh, three years, you know, I went. There's pictures of me on the side of skyscrapers in. So I've made, I'm in Vegas, and there I am, a hundred foot picture of me on the side of a building. Is kind of bonkers. That's bonkers. And then turning up at SEMA and having people line up around the block to just come and see me and come and see me on stage. This guy that fixes up cars for a living. Uh, that was kind of bonkers as well. Uh, but no, that that's, you know, I've had some amazing experiences there. But for uh, for me being back here with my businesses, I'm not in America, uh, it comes down to family again. So it's, there we are in America. I'm working with Ann Anstead. We are flying. Wheeler Dealers is doing phenomenally well. Highest rated show on the network out there. Uh, we're, we're, we're buzzing along. Uh, Ant had a wife and had a child in America, so he's now anchored to America because he has a child there. He set himself up. He set himself up and he's got a child there and he's got a life there. And he wants to continue with me and Wheeler Dealers in the States. And he wants to do that. Of course he does. Um, but my mother becomes so uh, desperately ill. There are times where I've told to drop everything, get on a flight, come home. 
you know, we are at that moment and you, you've suffered loss and you know what that feels like. So there's moments where um, I, I'm the baby of six of my family, but my family would lean upon me uh, in time of crisis. And I need to be with my family. You know, I just need to be with them. Uh, forget work, forget everything else. I just need to be here. So I was given this opportunity um, to bring wheeler dealers back to the UK because of my family. They said, look, you know, you need to be near your family. Do you want to go back home? Do you want to be next to them? And I said, yeah, of course I do. You know, I need to be there for them. You know, just to, I love to show, but it's not as important as being next to my my family during this crisis. So um, I had this conversation with Ant. And Ant, uh, who's the most loving person uh, and the most wonderful person I've ever worked with up to that point, uh, and said, please go home, be with your family, don't worry about me, don't worry about this TV show, go home. In fact, go home and uh, let's talk about how we can create Wheeler Dealers back in the UK. Uh, so I come back home with Discovery's Love. Uh, and uh, when I got here, I, I'd already done a series in the UK called Dream Car with Elvis. And when I got here, um, Discovery Channel said, look, would you like to bring Wheeler Dealers here, but have it back home permanently? You're doing Dream Cup, would you like to bring Wheeler Dealers back? Of which, when I reached out to Ant, he um, was already on a different career path. He's Mr. Hollywood. He's, you know, a great-looking guy. He can Sparkle he, in the eye. Sparkle in the eye. He can, he can achieve anything. That guy's brilliant. So Ant said, look, just go and do it. But, um, you know, don't fuck it up. So I said to Elvis, do you want to come and be the mechanic on Wheeler Dealers? He thought I was joking, told me to go fuck off. He said, you're fucking kidding. I said, no. So he put down the phone to me, phoned Ant, and he said, Mike's just asked me to join him on Wheeler Dealers, and Ant said, please do it. Don't fuck it up. Please do it. Do it, my love. So uh, Elvis became my wingman on Wheeler Dealers, and uh, thankfully he did because uh, it's just been amazing working with him and this next evolution of Wheeler Dealers the last four years doing Dream Car and Wheeler Dealers with Elvis, and now this new series we're doing, has been the most fantastic. I, you know, I love working with Ed. I love working with Ant. But this is sort of, you know, if I'm going to highlight my career in the best way possible, if I could have written this down 10 years ago, how would you like to twilight your career? If I could have written down what I'm doing right now, um, I, I, I would think that is impossible. I'm never going to get there. And that dream is never going to happen. Um, but you know what? I'm a great believer in it, willing things into life. And if you uh, will it into life and you work hard enough at willing it into life and talking to talking the right uh, to the right people at the right time, you can make anything happen. And um, I literally uh, pestered, I've pestered everyone for the past four years about why we're going to go with these and what we're going to do with it. And uh, And I've been screaming and shouting about it to a level where I'm, you know, if we're not doing it, I'm not doing it. If we're not doing this version of it, I'm not doing it. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, this wonderful, amazing company I work for have been so loyal to me uh, for the past 22 years, actually, in my my life, uh, Discovery, Warner now, um, love me and say, yeah, whatever you want to do, we're going to do it with you. Great. What's the difference between being the on the show as a presenter but also doing a lot of the production 
in the background and just being a presenter. How would you summarise the difference? Uh, the summarised difference, being a presenter, you just got to turn it on. you got to turn it on at 6 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you've got to be on it. You can't let the audience down and you can't let yourself down and you have to really focus in on what you're doing. So, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, in the morning I could be working on a 1969 Mini and in the afternoon I could be driving Freddie's McLaren P1, right? It could be that. Uh, but you have to be as flipping on it with that Mini as you know in full well that later on that day you're going to be driving a P1. You know, I, I, you, you just have to be on it, basically. And you have to really um, uh, be a great orator with your audience. You have to understand your audience, who they are, how to talk to them, how not to condescend, how to um, engage and be entertaining at the same time. You know, people switch on the box in the corner of the room because they want to be entertained. They don't want to sit there and be miserable. They want some melancholy, miserable arsehole on the TV. They want to see somebody enjoying themselves and uh, they can live their life vicariously through through the, the telly. Uh, so being part of the production team as the producer of the show as well, uh, I get to be part of that creative process so I can determine what I feel that we should be doing and where we should be going with the show and how it can work and, and be creative and get excited. So I get excited about what's happening because I know what's happening because I've had a hand in in creating it with the rest of the team. You know, I've had this hand of uh, of uh, being part of that creative process. And it gives you much more control over what you do. And you can form the shows in the way that you... And that gives you the confidence on camera. Of course it does. It gives you the, you know, the, the, the series that we're making at the moment, the 21st series or 21st year of Wheeler Dealers, yes, crazy, is the is the boldest and biggest yet. And we just had a series, but, you know, just literally finished at the back end of last year. Uh, 2023, we ended up, you know, I think our best ever series, um, me and Elvis is. Uh, we started with a Fiesta that got stolen and we ended up with a Peugeot 405 MI16 that I found in Portugal that we lifted a 15 grand profit out of. And that, that that's, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other. So miserable to joy. Uh, and that series, people loved it. That series was was universally loved by everyone. But what I don't know is what we've got lined up for the next one, which is our global series. So well, I, I pushed and written a series uh, to take us all over the world to celebrate Wheeler Dealers and the cars that motivate nations all over the world. And uh, this wonderful company that I work for, Discovery Channel, give me permission to, to go and make it and do it. And uh, we are in Germany, Poland, France, Italy, uh, USA, and four episodes in Australia. And uh, it meant that I get to work with people like Freddie Tavarish on the P1 project and help him. Uh, I've been in uh, France bouncing around in a 2CV Forganet. I could do a BMW E30 M3 in Germany. I can uh, I can work. I, I got to drive a BMW, took the M1, the BMW M1 from their museum that's done 8,000 kilometres worth a couple of million dollars and gave it to me for the day for, as my runaround car. So I've got BMW just giving me an M1. Just Do you get those moments where you can pinch yourself? So uh, honestly, wait until you see the video on the, wait until you see the, the show. I am 
screaming like a kid. I can't. I'm in an M1 BMW. You know, the most expensive car on the planet is likely to be Andy Warhol's hand-painted M1, which BMW let me also uh, be around. Uh, that's likely it'd be the most expensive car that'll ever get sold ever. And there I am driving there, the next one down, their museum showpiece, 8,000 kilometres on the clock. And they're just tossing me the keys. Uh, of course. It's a pinch yourself moment. You're like, are you kidding me? They opened up the inner sanctum for me and Elvis. They went, he likes Formula One cars to Elvis. He worked in Formula One. Let's open up this door, this secret door in this secret location that nobody in the world knows except for the people that work there. Turn the key in the door, slid it open. There's every single BMW Formula One car they ever, ever competed in. All of them, all there, all just parked up. And it was like just being in this inner sanctum of wonderfulness. And I'm like, car utopia. Yeah, and I'm pinching myself with Elvis today. You know, this only happened like two weeks ago. I'm pinching myself going, how, how do we get here? How do I get here? This is well, just amazing. that's a question. Do you think you would be there without a £4,000 chandelier? Mm. Or do you think you'd have still found your way there? I would have still found my way there. That's yeah, what but, I believe. But, yeah, no, I, do, I would have still found my way to, to where... The chandeliers really helped, and that story is the is the reset that I needed, is the kickstart that I needed. But I would have still got there somewhere, uh, and somehow, whether it was you know I've done everything from um, bomb-proofing windows in London to uh, you know literally anything to um to to put food on the table to you know to support my family, support my wife. Uh, I've worked really hard at doing it. You know, I've worked really hard, and I still am. You know. I just created another business, a van centre in Leamington, and I've been working really, really hard in putting that together and, and creating an industry for other people. You know, now I've got five or six staff that are all relying on that, you know, to provide their, you know, pay their mortgages and pay their telephone bills. And uh, that's because we created it. Um, uh, it, it. I love doing that. You know, I love, love that. Love doing stuff. I love doing stuff, yeah. I mean, there is a finite point where Mr Brewer does have to stop just relax take some time enjoy some time with michelle um but not at the moment i've still got this uh i still got the, the rod up my ass i've still got this impetus to go and work and work hard and uh anyone who knows me anyone is around me alex and um you know my friends my my social network james friends, may james may you know, just text me uh anyone richard Ammons, you know anyone who knows me uh they all say you're the hardest working person uh, they know it's, it's, so that the irony of me flipping open the internet and saying I'm a lazy bastard every day, which somebody tells me, uh, is quite funny because um, uh, you know I do not only do I do my TV stuff and van centres and car centres and charity work, uh, I've also uh, I I host around the world um, nine car shows a year. Uh, which is a big deal, you know, as I'm flown all over the world to go and be the stage host uh, for nine different car shows, including the NEC Restoration Show, the NEC Classic at the end of the year, the British Motor Show, um, the Big E in, in uh, Boston, Springfield in America. Um, and I am done a bit of... The, Chiro's asked me to do that, but it clashes with another show that I do. Uh, I've hosted SEMA um, a few times. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm. I, I, that's hard work, you know. Those things are hard work. So how 
to you stay so humble? Uh, I got, you know, I'm just nothing, just Mike, I'm nothing special. Just a guy that works hard. I find it really weird when people go, you know, and they come up to me and I get approached every day, you know, put petrol in the car. Or yesterday I was walking around Aldi's with Michelle, you know, getting a bit of shopping and uh, people want a picture. And that, it's great. I love it. I love people. I love meeting them. Um, but I really find it weird when people say you're amazing, you're brilliant and uh, all that kind of stuff because I'm just not. I'm just Mike. I'm just a normal regular guy that... Um, loves cars loves and loves cars. doing a deal. Yeah, it loves doing the deal. I do, I, I've got rules in place with some very close friends and now you're one of them, Ben. The rule sticks with you as well and uh, and I'm sure it's vice versa. If anyone who's close to me ever sees me start climbing up my own ass, they have a rule to take me to one side and fucking tell me and say, well, just back right down. You're just Mike. You know, don't get up your own ass. Uh, and that which should be the same for you. It should be the same for Alex. It Quite should profound, be the, yeah. It is profound because um, I've worked with people and I've watched it go the other way. And um, when it goes the other way, it's nasty. It's horrible. And uh, they turn and they become somebody else. There's a famous saying... I would say not quite as famous as Wheeler Dealer in has become, but there's a famous saying which is cars unite people. A few moments ago, you spoke about all the different places you've been watched around the world, presented, and all of that is through really a core love of cars. Now, Alex told me a little story, and it's widely documented that you've not only done car shows, that you were actually recognised, and please say if we're wrong here, by one of the members of the Taliban in Afghanistan for your car show. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tangent. Uh, I did a documentary series that I wrote and produced for Discovery Channel back in 2011 called uh, Frontline Battle Machines with Mike Brewer, where I threw myself on the front line in Afghanistan uh, during the, the thick end of the war. And uh, it was a, a documentary series, really, so I could, from a layman's terms, from a from an average man's street, how can we understand what's going on? What is being provided to our troops? What equipment do they have? And are they well equipped? Are we paying enough tax money? Are they well equipped? Are they getting a... So I wrote a series where I literally go and test everything from a tornado jet that I flew in and flew to a uh, MI, you know, whatever it was, 81 rifle, to a handgun, to a pair of goggles, knee pads, to helicopters, to long-range weapons. I've fired and flown and shot everything. I literally did everything. Much more than a regular soldier would do. You know, I, I experienced it all. And whilst I was there, um, I was shot at, blown up, was in a helicopter crash. The pilot got shot in the face. I really went through it. It was a horrendous time, but amazing to come back with this film. Amazing. So when it was over, I come back to the UK, promising myself and my wife that I would never, ever do that again. That was the most stupid idea I ever had because, uh, you know, we nearly lost it all a couple of times. Um, but then I get a phone call from Discovery and say... Um, Look, that was such a success. The Americans now are interested in you doing a series for them in Afghanistan. So I, uh, we have no way for me to get from here to the front line 
in a, in uh, when I was doing it for the British Army, they flew me out Bryce Norton. By me? Uh, yeah, uh, as a crew member, flew me out Bryce Norton on a RAF transport plane, flew into um, Cambastian. For me to get to uh, Patika, which is the northern part of Afghanistan at the foot of the Hindu Kush mountains, for me to get there for the Americans, they have no way of doing that here. And the British weren't going to fly me out there, so we had to find a way out there. So I flew in domestically uh, through Interkabul, uh, which was the first mistake I made. I went with one cameraman, uh, and this is just a tester video that I'm doing for Discovery uh, of people that I'm going to go and meet. Uh, and I flew in with one cameraman, and we landed at Kabul, and I realised that we're well out of my depth here. We've landed it, you know, with body armour, with press written all over it, into a war zone where you've got insurgents that want to kill the press. So that was the first mistake. Uh, but very quickly, we managed to get ourselves out through the airport into a vehicle and get to the American Air Force Base. Once we was on the base, we're fine. Um, but the base was under heavy bombardment uh, and it was getting smashed. So after a few frantic phone calls back to the UK, it was decided that it was so dangerous that I shouldn't be there. Uh, we need to get out there. So there was a, an evac. So they now going to evac me out. And it was get on any transport plane you can to just get me out of that base and land me at Cambastian and I could fly back with the RAF. Uh, and whilst I'm sitting at the airport waiting for this evac, this train of Special Forces American soldiers came through, eight of them, and they had right in the middle of them a Taliban insurgent, and they were holding his head to the floor and they were marching him through, and uh, as they marched him past me, um, he sort of looked out the corner of his eye, and he, he went, stop, wheel it, wheel it Now, the, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, the um, the Special Forces guys, all American, ain't got a clue I am, they've never seen telly, let alone wheel it, wheel it, so ain't got a clue. So that's what baffled why this guy's freaking out. But yeah, they must be thinking, wheel, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Is he important? You know, should we get him? And uh, this guy's in broken English is going, we watch, we watch. And I'm going, oh, thank you. And I'm thinking, oh, you're, I think you're a prisoner. You know, this guy's a prisoner. And he's got his, you know, they're sort of holding on to him tightly. And he's going. And I went, thank you. And then they pushed his head back down and they started to move off. And he's just shouted. He shouted, I swear to God, do a Toyota high ace. <laughs> I swear to God. He went, Toyota high ace, as he was marched off into the distance. And, um, yeah, the Taliban at the time, uh, they're sitting up in the mountains watching Wheeler Davis, which is kind of good, isn't it? Really, it's another territory that I've covered. <laughs> More <laughs> audience. Does that make you feel... How, what does that make you feel? Just, it's kind of bonkers it because, or... you know, it's like, you know, I, you know, got to... Being in California, I get to meet people like uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and hang out with them at car shows. And uh, they're coming up, they go, hey, Mike, Wheeler Dealer, man, I love you. I love your show. And I'm like, what? A big button? You know, when I first met you and I said, I'm watching podcasts, you've been, what? You've listened? And uh, it's it's the same. You know, it's the same for me. I got in a lift with, it's the weirdest bonkers dropping names here. I got in a lift at a Chelsea football game with Michelle, VIPs, Chelsea. And uh, we're getting a lift with Will Farrell, Boris Becker, 
Ant and Deck. Can you believe that? All of us got in the lift together. And uh, as I got in the lift, they went, Mike, you right, Mike? All right, how are you? Love your show. And I'm like, Will Farrell's going, hey, man, love your show. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of, this is a bit weird. But, you know, it gets watched. It gets watched all over the planet. It's uh, over 200 million people watch it in 200 territories. So, um, yeah, it's been over 20 years. So at some point, somebody's watched it, haven't they? They say it's the most watched uh, TV show in the world. Everyone needs downtime, whether you're Will Ferrell, Jay Leno, Mike Brewer, Ben. Yeah. Everyone needs downtime, and I guess everyone needs entertainment. And I think the underlying main point of your whole story is you've always been an entertainer, from selling at those markets when you were a kid to being on those pitches, wanting to be the kid that everybody liked. And being that entertainer has landed you as a successful businessman with an amazing career who's still entertaining today. So, Mike Brewer, I massively appreciate you coming on Road to Success today and telling your story. And I hope that it stands out there for people to be inspired by. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.